Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 475th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is farming for a local restaurant and a rapidly growing community. We're talking with David Barrow about sustainable urban farming in Central Texas. David is the farm manager for Eden East Farm in East Austin. After 18 years of working in the film industry, he began managing Eden East Farm and runs the farm in conjunction with a locally sourcing restaurant. Eden East Farm is a sustainable urban farm sitting three miles from the state capital. They grow over 65 varieties of produce throughout the year and service restaurants and the public alike. Formerly Springdale Farm, the property has served the community for over 100 years in some sort of farming capacity. Welcome to the show today, David. Are you ready to rock? Yeah, man. Let's roll with it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, well, it was definitely a circuitous path. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, Like you said, I have 18 years experience in the film industry. Uh, But throughout that time, a lot of my subject matter was nature, food, chefs, how restaurants operate, et cetera. And I started growing backyard gardens, uh, started community gardens down in Panama and Central America. Wow. Um, And then just befriended a lot of the farmers whenever I moved to Austin because I ended up producing and directing a local food documentary in 2012. And so I got to meet basically everyone that was part of the local food scene in Austin. And through that, just built strong relationships. And the property that I am now the farm manager of, the the owner and I have been friends for years. He decided to retire and he approached me and asked me if I wanted to do this. So we went through an extensive training period where I learned the business and got to you know mine them for information. Uh, and then they slowly put me in the field. And here we are today, about 15 months later. Wow. So for your, I'm going to ask you a heart-based question. For your heart, how was working in the film industry and how is working on the farm? How does that compare? Well, they are both about patience 
and efficiency where your every single second, every single minute counts for money. You have to be extremely efficient in everything that you do, but then you have to have patience when interacting with clients. You have to have patience when interacting with actors. You have to have patience when interacting with nature. And then on the farm side, it's the same way. If you have patience and allow the soil to talk to you, allow the plants to talk to you, you'll know what to do and you can grow a productive business. Nice. So I'm driving up the driveway into Eden Urban, Eden East Urban Farm. And what do I see? Well, if you're driving up the driveway, the rear driveway is a gravel pathway. And on both sides, there are raised beds or rows of crops. So you'll first pass by our 80-foot greenhouse where we seed 95% of everything that we grow on the property. And then beyond that, you reach all the rows. In the distance, you'll see the farmhouse where we live on site. And you'll continue across a creek that is a tributary of the Boggy Creek here in East Austin. And then you get to the front section of the farm where our chickens and ducks live and meander around in the shade of the trees. And then there's a huge pecan grove and then the restaurant on the front side of the property. Nice. So people coming in the front are greeted by this wonderful locally grown restaurant. Yeah. So both ways, whether you come in through the front or the rear of the property, you're you're being able to see a whole lot of produce being grown. The restaurant, which is in uh, it's al fresco dining underneath a pavilion where the restaurant invites the guests to grab a cocktail, walk throughout the property see what is on their plate that night. <laughs> I mean, it is wow. a very interactive. I mean, it's not farm to table. It's farm and table around here. <laughs> nice. And that's a term you actually use. Yes, sir. Cool. And what makes Eden East Farm sustainable? Well, first off, we're sustainable because every, we, we start with good soil management. When we begin with good soil management, we are putting everything back into the soil and it stays on the property. Uh, so when we are weeding our beds, we don't put the weeds in the compost pile. It's only compostable items, food items, um, byproduct of chicken and ducks, and even some uh, mushroom composting that we do in there when we grow wild mushrooms on the property. When we begin with that good soil management that I was that I was speaking about, our compost pile is extremely important. We call it Mount Vesuvius because during the winter time it'll actually smoke whenever we properly know the temperature. And everything that we take out of it, we're putting on our rows. And everything that's coming from our rows go back onto it except for weeds. A lot of the weeds that grow around here are either edible or we feed them to our chickens and ducks, which they thoroughly love. So good soil management is extremely sustainable to us. Second off, uh, we do seed saving uh, around on this property. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no synthetic chemicals on the property whatsoever. And you're growing a lot of food there then, right? Correct. Uh, there is thousands of pounds of food growing on this property. To give you an idea, it's tomato, eggplant, pepper, cucumber season for us currently. Yes. And I would say that we're harvesting, actually I can say for a fact that we're harvesting over 100 pounds of cucumbers a day 
Wow. All one kind or different kinds? We currently, we're offering suyo long, pickling cucumbers, Space Master 8. Uh, we're growing the row 7 seeds, which are not something that we've saved. That is an, an addition. It's kind of like an experimental cucumber that row 7 seeds put out. Um, and then we have gherkins that we had some saved seeds from. So those are all the different types of cucumbers. So I'm a home urban farmer. And the way I manage my property is I have a little bit of this stuff growing here and a little bit of stuff growing there and a little bit here and a little bit there so that there's always something to eat in my yard. But when mm-hmm. you're actually running a farm, it's a different process than that. Can, can you tell us what that process is like? One of the things that urban farms need to do is extend their growing seasons. There's many different avenues to be able to do this. What we do is we do succession planting so that we can start certain crops early and then have two or three or maybe even four plantings of that same crop so that we have early plantings, regular season plantings, and late season plantings. And that helps us extend our season so that we can offer a certain product to restaurants and to the public for a longer period of time. We do this several ways. One, we test out the soil in each of our rows and see what's growing best. Two, we look at how much sunlight that that area of the farm is getting. So in your early season crops, for instance, we may put it in a sunnier area. In a late season crop, we may put it in a shadier area. And these are just some of the things that we do personally. I I know that people have their own ways of doing things, but finding out what type of a soil structure is and finding out the sun is extremely important to us. And then third thing is water. We're currently on a well that's been grandfathered into the city. So we have the ability to have a constant supply of water at the moment, Mm -hmm. which is extremely helpful for us in Texas, especially during the summer where you can just happen to have a drought, most likely every August. (laughs) Yeah, well, you just don't get rain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hot here. We affectionately call August our winter time because nothing wants to grow because yep. it's so oppressively hot. Yeah. Yeah. The, the same thing here. We're in Phoenix and same thing here, July, August, and September. It's like, it's hot. Yeah, yeah, it's hot and things don't want to grow and go take a vacation. <laughs> For sure. For sure. But farmers don't get vacation. Farmers need to be working. <laughs> Building soil for sure. Yes, sir. So you mentioned building healthy soil, keeping healthy soil. Can you give us a sense of what healthy soil is to you? What's that look like? To me personally, healthy soil is something without synthetic chemicals, and it is leaves, dirt, plant byproducts, chicken poo, mushroom compost, anything that we perceive as compostable. Throughout the years, this farm had a couple of different services where there was people who would come and dump compost here. So there was a business that operated for a while here in Austin called the Eastside Compost Peddlers. And it was people who biked around, picked up neighborhood compost, wow. and then would bring it here as a as a drop-off point. Uh-huh. So uh, the, the farm was getting hundreds of pounds of compost a month. And so they were always able to have a healthy, active microbe compost mountain. Um, and we turn it several times a year and it is still providing extremely healthy soil. We're lucky that, well, the city of Austin is, is lucky that we have now citywide composting, but we, the farm, are extremely lucky that we have a restaurant on site. 
Oh, yes. Which means we get to compost all of their byproducts. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that they aren't using, which is highly it, it specialized, but anything that they don't use or anything that they need to compost, we can utilize it on the farm. Right. Um, and so we put we put it directly into our compost pile. We mix it up uh, and take the temperature and, and make sure that it's still operating uh, as it should be. About a year and a half ago, I started collecting eight to 10 buckets a week from a local restaurant. And it's amazing how far that goes. I have a third of an acre here, not quite five acres, but I have a third of an acre here. And I haven't had to buy compost the past year and a half. I think that's great. And I know that it may be difficult for home growers or small plot growers to have a healthy compost system because it is an added responsibility. It is. Um, But it is extremely worth it. I mean, I firmly believe that if you have a healthy soil that you decrease the potential for pests, you decrease the potential for weeds, and you increase the fertility and the productive nature of your plants. From my time here, it's been proven over and over again that there's something special about the soil here, and we want to continue taking it as great as care as we can with it. Yeah, well, and that you know, the that really it all boil, healthy plants all boil down to healthy soil. Yes, sir. One of the other things you said early on in our talk was that you grow out most of your seeds or seedlings from seed that you save. Tell me about that process, because that's pretty unique. A lot of the seeds that we've saved have been saved throughout the years from previous farmers or stuff that I've done personally in the past. Mm -hmm. And we will take those seeds back to our greenhouse and start them in little one-inch blocks and move them up to four-inch blocks after they've germinated. And then after several more weeks, they go out into the field. So it is extremely important for us to know which varieties grow really well here and what we can actually save. You know, some plants are are fairly easy to save. Some plants aren't. Those seeds aren't as easily saved. And any, any seeds that we use outside of that are coming from organic distributors, larger seed catalog names that are all organic seeds. You know, for instance, our our Beauregard sweet potatoes. They grow really well in this area. Uh, they, they're, they're high-producing, high-yielding, extremely healthy sweet potatoes. You know, we're not specifically saving those tubers, but we have saved some seed potatoes that we did this past year that we plan on, we plan on planting again for another fall potato crop. When I found sweet potatoes in my yard, they, it's kind of hard to get rid of them once they're established. Because they, you know, because you can't get <laughs> Tubers, rid of them all. Yes. You can't get rid of them all, so you, you keep harvesting, and then some get left over, and they come back the next year, right? Yes, sir. I have heard those stories, and I'll uh, I'll tell you about it next year. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's right, because you've only been on the farm what fifteen months? Yeah. So I've personally only managed the the farm for uh, you know over a year, but the property has been some semblance of a farm for a long time. So a lot of the things that I'm doing are from notes that other people have had on the property from experiences that other farmers have had in this area. Wow, that's amazing. Then my own experimentation. So you put those three facets together and it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a laboratory. It's a laboratory each and every day to be able to figure out what works best, whether it's the historical data that I can 
work with or is it something I'm like, wait a minute, this is what I've read, this is what I've learned, I'm going to try this and let's see if it works. Um, so far, most things have worked. <laughs> That's good. Right. So you seem pretty inspired by all of this. What was the, why? Why did you go here? A few years ago, I was in a lot of conversations with friends, families, partners, et cetera, and we decided that, or, or everything that was just coming with my life and what I, what I really wanted to attain in my life was kind of lending itself to, hey, let's go grab a piece of property somewhere and do something with it. And, you know, that something would have been a educational event center farm and culinary kitchen and do something magical with all those different elements. And, you know, as we're going through the progression and moving forward with, you know, maybe going this route, this opportunity popped up. Like I said, my predecessor decided to retire. He asked me if I wanted to do this. Uh, so someone else put their trust in me and I wanted to prove their trust right. So I decided to do it. You know, it's amazing how the universe, once we set our mind to something, starts to conspire to give us what we want. Yeah, some, some, something conspired to definitely do this. It, is, it was an intense feeling and it happened. Nice. There's something really unique about your farm. What is it? Eden East Farm and its predecessors have been here for about 100 years. So in 1928, this Natchke family bought the property as, as it lies right now, same boundaries and everything. And they ran cattle on it, cattle and did berry farming for about 50 years. And when 1983 rolled around, both the matriarch and patriarch had, had passed away and the children decided to sell the land. And so this couple decided to buy the land and they were the first one to put proper rows on the property. Um, and from 83 to 91, they did farming. They have since moved on and, and founded an even bigger farm just north of Austin by 90 miles. And uh, in 91, my predecessor, Glenn Four and his wife, Paula, bought the property and ran landscaping business off of it until 2008. But in the landscaping business, you know, they were just growing things to then transplant elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of set up to continue growing, continue farming. And then in 08, they slowly turned it into what we presently see now on the property. We've done some of our own our own changes and our own evolution of it over the last fifteen months, but you know, it is it is a proper farm and it's been a proper farm for an extremely long period of wow, time. No we kidding. we say that the soil is historical and that it should be saved because it's been here for so long. I mean East Austin is alluvial river bottom soil. I mean, this is black land, awesome, nutritious soil. I mean, that's why Austin has four urban farms within a quarter mile of each other. Oh, wow. I mean, we're three miles from the state capitol steps. Our three urban farm neighbors are 2.9, maybe 3.2, and, you know, maybe 2.9 as well from the state capitol steps. You know, we're all within two miles of downtown. There, there's something special about East Austin. I think it may be the only place in the nation that has such a close proximity of large urban farms. We know that there's urban farms all over the nation, whether they be on rooftops or in agri-hoods or, you know, reclaimed parking lots. Or, or anything like that. And, you know, and then there's people who are growing in their yards, which 
you know, I perceive as the next evolution of urban farming. Yes. But, you know, having these urban farms and this good soil is extremely unique to Austin. I mean, I was told back in the day that basically everything from Interstate 35 to Bastrop, which is 32 miles to the east of us, was the largest spinach growing area in the United States in the early 1900s. So this area ships spinach to New York by train with the new quote unquote ice boxes. You know, there's a reason that people farm this area. And I would hope that all these farms stay for a long time and that, you know, the the older farmers find younger farmers who want to continue farming their properties, which is kind of what happened with Glenn and with, with me. I'm fairly young for a farmer when the national average is in the upper 50s or lower 60s. Mm-hmm. And what? tell me about the relationship between the farm and the restaurant. Because I, while I was in college, I went back to college late in life in 2001, 2002, 2003, and 2004. And one of the things that I did was I farmed my front and backyard. Remember, I only have a quarter of an acre, so I was just doing small batch stuff. But one of the ways that I marketed it was to restaurants. It was so easy to make friends with a chef and say, what do you want me to grow? So tell me about the relationship you have with the restaurant. Yeah. So the relationship with the restaurant's really easy for the one on site where we make the employees park on the backside of the property and walk through the property so that they see everything that we're growing. Nice. Um, we have we have signage up on the crops. We do monthly lessons with them on like, hey, these are the wild edibles that are growing on the property. These are the cultivated edibles that we're growing on the property. And you can use multiple types of that. And, you know, it's Thursday night. The restaurant is open. And I'm I'm seeing some of the chefs walk around getting their mise en place together, which is another thing that we encourage. So they're able to walk throughout the property and find garnishes, find things that they want to be able to use on whichever dish that they are working on that evening. They're able to order at any time. We will we will harvest for them. Sometimes, you know, I'm harvesting 30 minutes prior to dinner service. Other times, you know, we're harvesting in the morning and I'm working with them to, to make sure that those things are, they're the proper items that they need, want, utilized. And then furthermore, it's the long-term planning. I can tell them, hey, in three months, we're going to have products A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Start thinking about what you maybe want to do with that. These are my projections on poundage. This is my projections on how long it'll last, et cetera. And then to put the cherry on the top is that there are a couple of items on the property that I specifically grow for the restaurant. So there is a specific guajillo pepper that we've grown for the restaurant that is for the summer menu. There are specific herbs that we grow for the restaurant because we know what the chef wants to be able to do with those. So there's a lot of communication and a lot of back and forth to make sure that they are challenging their creativity and that they are inspired daily, just like I am being around all this. Yeah. And I I don't want to walk past something you said. And that was that the chefs come out to the fields and essentially they harvest or they tell you what they want to harvest to take into the restaurant pretty much immediately. Well, yeah. So of course they can order their produce, yeah. which we harvest, but maybe what you're referring to is their, is their mise en place. So we encourage them, you know, half hour before service, an hour before service 
to go and find things on the property that they're inspired by. Yes. You know, we show them what's edible and what's not edible, and then they can go back at a later time and get something. So maybe it's the Turks cap that grow wild on the property, or maybe it's the blackberries that we have. We even have wild Mustang grapes here on the property that they can go and do like a quick pickle with if they wanted to do something with those on the menu. If they wanted certain tops or certain sized herb leaves for a specific dish that night, they can go and get those. So they're, they're, there's a lot of latitude that they have to be creative. That, that is jaw-dropping. That is so incredibly cool. You've used the term a couple of times, mise-en plots? Mise-en plots. Uh, it's a French term for your basically your preparations, your space. Uh, so Mise en Place is M-I-S-E-E-N-P-L-A-S-P-L-A-C, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Mise en Place. Got it. So it's their, it's their prep area, prep time, and they're getting creative and getting ready to serve for the evening, and they come out and do a wander in a wild harvest. Correct. Wow, how cool is that? So you've got some challenges coming up. With this farm, we all actually have challenges, and, and a big piece of it is is that the land that we grow on has increased so much in price that how does a farmer afford it anymore? Uh, so Eden East Farm has been sold to a developer. Tell me about that, and what's the future of the farm? Uh, correct. So to be clear, Springdale Farm, which was our predecessors, they, they retired and sold the property. The developers cannot do anything with the property right now because it needs to be permitted and rezoned. But we've been given two years, so we are in talks right now about what the future is for this property. Mm -hmm. We do know that there will be some semblance of development on the property, but that we are assured of a restaurant, a brick-and-mortar restaurant, and an area on the land to continue farming. So we will still have part of the property to showcase what can still be grown in East Austin and how unique the restaurant on site is. I mean, there's not many restaurants like this in the nation. Right. Um, the only ones that, that I can even think of, you know, are very top dollar white tablecloth places in California. So so it's it's fairly unique and and the developers supportive of that and they're also cognizant of the fact of, of how embedded that the restaurant is having been open for seven years, you know, it's embedded in the Austin culinary scene. So the, the restaurant will remain part of the farm will remain. And then we're actively looking for other farmland to have a satellite place so that we can still continue to bring in produce, host a farm stand biweekly and, and service our community, you know, in any sort of small manner or small aspect that we can. When I'm working with a developer here in Phoenix who's actually building out home sites and in the public areas is putting in edible landscaping. So as this thing develops, maybe plant the seed with the developer that they could be planting fruit trees and berry hedges and those kinds of things so that there's just food everywhere. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's such a great idea and a great comment. So we've already marked the fruit trees on the property. So there's there's two pear trees, five apple trees, pomegranate tree, a persimmons tree, a lime tree, kefir lime trees, fig trees, et cetera. And we've already marked those and those will remain on the property. So they, the, the developer will have to go around those wow, uh, so cool. that we can conti continue to produce those type of fruiting trees on the property. Yeah. 
Awesome. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. No problem at all. Well, the easiest answer is that I fail every single day. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, that's how we as learn. A, as a farmer, you are always solving problems every single day. There is some sort of solution that you have to find. But I, I almost want to twist it a little bit and just say, like, hey, listen, you never actually fail. You just try everything. Oh, yeah, there um, you go. So, exactly. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of attempts, and you succeed in, in some of those. And then you don't succeed in some of those. But, you know, there's failures with, you know, rebuilding well parts. There's failures with rebuilding irrigation parts. You know, there's failures with crops. Sometimes you go like, hey, I'm going to try this new Asian green that I read about. And I think that is so cool. Or, you know, the, uh, a specific Chinese cabbage that's very similar to Napa cabbage and you really want it to happen. And guess what? You planted it too late in the season and the bugs got it. So, you know, there's failures that happen all the time that you would not learn if you didn't have those. And I can firmly admit that I, I think I've failed on something, however big or small, every single day. And I'm just fine with that. And this is the reason I asked this question is so that people get to understand that growing is one great big grand experiment and we just need to figure it out. And when things don't work, it's like, oh, okay, I won't do that again. Yes, yeah. I mean, you, you have to fail. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. uh, or or the, the, the sweet taste of success wouldn't be as sweet. Right. So what do you consider your biggest success? Biggest success is is still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Season two. This is the most exhausting, physically demanding gig that I've done in my entire life. And, uh, but it's also the most rewarding. So the biggest success is that I've learned patience and enjoy this every single day. Nice. And what drives you? Challenges basically challenging myself with learning something new every single day. Yeah, and we have to do that if we're going to be successful at it. Yeah, I mean, complacency is, I'm an Aquarius, complacency is really bad for me. And so this is not a job to be complacent with. Learning something, figuring something out, the thrill I get whenever, you know, I learn something new, you know, that's what's, that's that emotion that drives me. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Elliot Coleman's The New Organic Grower. It's a great one. It's easy. It's for the rudimentary readers. It's for the intelligent readers. It's for everyone. But you can open up any part of that book and read a little bit of it, and you will always take something from it. Absolutely. I also live in a household where we have bookshelves and bookshelves upon bookshelves of cookbooks. So it's not one specific cookbook, but looking at all the cookbooks and perusing through them, I think would be handy for any farmer because all you have to do is like, oh, wait a minute, there's something magical that can be done with everything that you grow. So why not grow something and then you yourself find out every single part that you can use? Yeah. I also wanted to do a shout out. We had Elliot Coleman on the podcast, episode 400. Uh, that was back in November of uh, last year, 2018. And it was an amazing episode. So for those of you that know or don't know Elliot Coleman, go check out our podcast 400 with him. He was, he was great. And what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Try everything once, whether it's starting a raised bed, whether it's starting a windowsill, herb garden, 
whether it's going to a community garden plot or anything, try anything once. Do not say no. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, David. You are quite welcome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you bet. This has been a great story. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Several different ways. They can actually visit the website of the the entire property. It's EdenEastAustin.com, which the restaurant's Eden East. Or you can follow us on Instagram at, at Eden East Austin or at Farmer Eden East. And then we have our own Facebook page, Eden East Austin as well. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Eden East Farm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.